When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 2021, it feels like almost anything is possible. What about a real fountain of youth? And I'm not talking about some magic elixir, but science to actually combat aging. There are medical trials happening today. Some of these stem from the Mayo Clinic to solve for extending life and and suspend or slow down the aging process. Today, Dr. Andrew Steele, a crusader in the field of biogerontology and the author of Ageless, is here to educate us on what science tells us about getting older without getting old. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. Andrew Steele, Dr. Andrew Steele. One of the things that attracted me to your research, and there's a, there's a lot of things because everyone wants to understand aging. And a huge piece of the equation when it comes to retirement or retirement planning is your longevity. And if you live, if your life expectancy is 20 years, you've got one set of circumstances to plan for. If it's 50 years, it's a totally different circumstance. And it makes for such an intriguing topic from a retirement planning standpoint. But really, this is just like a, this is a human topic that everybody wants to understand. And you describe, and by the way, Dr. Steele is Andrew is the is the author of Ageless, which is which is one of the most fascinating books that I've read in a very very long time. And we're going to kind of go through this today. Andrew, welcome from the UK. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a uh, time zone <laughs> confusing for time zones, but a lovely lovely bit of weather over here. Thankfully, at last. And if I know you're listening to this as a podcast, but if you were to see the video of this, you, you, Andrew looks like he's thirty, but he's actually <laughs> ninety. So it <laughs> is a wonderful testament to his uh, his background. And by the way, physics and then bio. Tell me what the name of it. Biogenesis. Tell me what this is. <laughs> Biogerontology. Yes, yeah, so I moved over into another hard to pronounce field or hard to yeah, sort of get your head around, which is called computational biology. And that basically means I tried to take some of my physics skills and my complete lack of wet lab skills, so you know, ability to deal with mice or cells and use computers to understand some of the huge data that biologists are producing at the moment. And yeah, the field of the study of aging biology is called biogerontology. So gero just means old. It's probably Latin or Greek. I'm afraid my classical education isn't quite as strong as my scientific one has been. But basically it means that, you know, it's the study of getting old and more, more importantly, the biological aspects of that. So that, so you are a, you were a physicist and then you went into biogerontology and mm-hmm. the study of aging and this is what i'm going to get right into the what is fascinating to me that we talk about in the book um but let me start with you you look at aging as a humanitarian crisis 
which is yeah. an interesting way to to look at this. It just seems like, hey, it's inevitable. It's just one of these things that it is what it is, and there's nothing you can do about it. Sure, you can kind of be healthier, and you can exercise, and we're going to talk about some of your habits and sleep. And But do you, explain to our audience your perspective on this, which is so different, which is that this is maybe it's something that's not as inevitable as we think, and that it's actually almost a disease or a crisis. Would you call it that? I'd certainly call it a crisis. I have a, I have a real um, sort of mixed feelings about whether or not to call it a disease. So let's step back a bit and just think, you know, why on earth would I call this natural process a crisis? And more importantly, a humanitarian crisis. You know, it's, it's this enormous toll of death and suffering that aging causes. And the reason is that although, you know, lots of aspects of the aging process aren't necessarily bad, you know, we get more wise, we, you know, get to spend time with our families, our families grow, we get to, you know, watch the world change. Those are all positive things. Unfortunately, from a biological perspective, the aging process is basically responsible for the biggest killers in the modern world. That's things like cancer, it's things like heart disease, it's things like dementia. And these diseases, you know, they don't just kill you, um, you know, whether or not you're worried about your own death. They also kill you slowly in a variety of horrible ways, because, you know, if you get cancer, you don't just wake up dead one morning. You actually, you know, potentially get diagnosed and suffer for years and have, you know, very, very invasive treatments to try and get rid of that cancer and so on and so on. So that's why I characterize aging in the book as the world's greatest humanitarian challenge. Because if you look all around the world, actually more than two thirds of deaths now are caused by the aging process. So of the 150,000 people who die every day on planet Earth, more than 100,000 of them are killed by aging but you're saying that aging is responsible for cancer i've always kind of thought of it as isn't cancer what kills you it's not aging that causes cancer why why do you say that that's aging and not just the disease itself so when scientists and doctors are trying to understand what causes a disease, they often talk about things called risk factors. And that's a sort of slightly technical term, but what it really means is things like smoking or drinking or, you know, eating too much. And obviously there are a variety of different ways that we can you know, abuse our bodies throughout our lives and make us more likely to get diseases like cancer or heart disease. But actually the single biggest risk factor for almost all of these diseases is just being old. And that's because there are a variety of processes that happen inside our biology. Cancer is actually a really great example. The sort of fundamental cause of cancer is damage damage to your DNA. So that's the instruction manual inside every one of your cells. And if your cell gets some mutations, some mistakes in that DNA, and those mutations are concentrated in particular places. So for example, uh, you know, we know that cancer is basically a cell that divides and divides and divides and never stops dividing and turns into a tumor, then can spread around your body and that's how it kills you. So given that these cells have to keep on dividing, they're going to get mistakes in their DNA that stop the processes that would ordinarily stop that cell from dividing. And they've also got to get a mistake that you know, effectively jams down the accelerator pedal and tells that cell to carry on dividing when it shouldn't. And if you get a, the correct combination of mutations, that's how cancer can arise. Now, mutations are caused by all kinds of different things. Some of it is things like tobacco smoke or you know, the food that we eat or the you know, things in our environment like the ultraviolet light in the sun. But quite a lot of those mutations are just caused by sort of an inevitable byproduct of being alive. Because every time your cells divide, they make a few mistakes copying that DNA. Um, you know, even just the fact that we metabolize and the fact that we burn food and turn it into energy to allow us to do everything, to think, to, you know, get around the house, do it, whatever it is that we do. Those um, chemical reactions can actually damage our DNA as well. So basically, it's just an inevitable process of time. Because as you go through your life, you're spending, you know, your cells are divided more times. You've obviously... You've been, you'd had an active metabolism for more of those decades. And eventually, if you get up to this threshold number of mutations, it's probably about five or 10 for any particular cancer, 
that's when you suddenly get the disease. And so as a consequence, there are all kinds of processes that sort of start very slowly in youth and eventually get to the point where maybe in our 60s or 70s or 80s, they're severe enough to cause something that we call a disease. But actually the cause of most of those diseases is the aging process itself. It's just the you know, sort of passage of time plus biology. So age is the culprit. And uh, I think we want to understand, and we've tried to, we, we've searched for the fountain of youth for since the beginning of time. And you're looking at this to some extent from a scientific perspective, but I, I'm fascinated by this, the study behind the salamander and the tortoise and the fact that, let take our audience through the importance of studying these two animals and their aging. Because this to me is, this kind of hits home to what you're talking about. Yeah, the reason that there's a tortoise on the front cover of the book is because I think they're just really fascinating creatures. And this isn't necessarily because we're going to, you know, work out something that's in the tortoise's DNA and enable ourselves to live as long as a tortoise. But it's sort of a, a proof of principle, a proof of something that not a lot of us realise. And that is that um, we think that ageing is inevitable because we age, if you look around, you know, our cats and our dogs and our hamsters, they all age as well and they die obviously on a much sort of more rapid time scale than we do. We sort of think that everything in the world around us gets old and dies. You know, even our cars, you know, our machines, they, they get rusty they have to have parts replaced and eventually you can't use them anymore so it seems like aging is just this sort of natural inevitable thing that the laws of physics mandate everything to have whether it's a car or whether it's a living organism and the way that you can measure this is by looking at how your risk of death changes with age so if you're a human um, I'm, I'm in my 30s right now as you correctly guessed and that means that my risk of death is somewhere in the region of one in a thousand per year but unfortunately, that carries on doubling every seven or eight years. So if I'm lucky enough to make it into my 80s, for example, my odds of death will be more like one in, uh, one in 20, so about 5% per year. And if I make it into my 90s, my odds of death then are more like one in six, so sort of life and death at the roll of a dice. So it starts out very small, but eventually, because of this exponential growth, it gets very big very quickly. And so this is a way of quantifying the rate at which humans age. It's a way of you know, sort of turning, it's a statistical definition of aging. It's not a biological one. It's just putting a number to how rapidly we age as, as creatures. But if you look at a tortoise or a salamander, certain species of those have what's called negligible senescence. And what that means basically is negligible aging. They have a risk of death that's constant no matter how old they are. Mm. So, you know, to take an example, the Galapagos tortoise, they can live to maybe 170, 180 years old. And obviously that's quite impressive. But what's more exciting about them isn't just, just quite how long they live. It's the fact their risk of death doesn't change with time. And more importantly, their risk of disease doesn't change with time. Their risk of frailty doesn't change with time. So a 150-year-old Galapagos tortoise is, you know, running around... Well, obviously not running around it is a tortoise but they're basically as sprightly as a 30 year old tortoise you know young adult and what that shows us is that aging isn't inevitable it's not a law of biology that we all have to grow old and die are there a and lot a result, so, andrew are there a lot so the tortoise is an example i didn't realize it's it's yeah 170 180 but is it because ultimately they end up dying in some other way eventually it's not because they just get old then and the same thing yeah, with the, they, the they same thing with the salamander things they often die of very similar things, but just on a delayed timetable. So the oldest recorded Galapagos tortoise was this one called Harriet, and I talk about her in the very beginning of the book. She was brought back, we think, from the Galapagos Islands by Charles Darwin himself, and she substantially outlived him because obviously she lived to this ripe, ripe old age. And she actually died, we think, at the age of about 175 of a heart attack. So she just died of the same stuff, but, you know, 100 years later than a human would probably die of a heart attack. And similarly, you know, of course, tortoises can get hit by a bus or they can get an infectious disease and die just the same way that humans can. So the idea of deferring aging is that you know probably will die of a similar spectrum of things overall but it'll just be much much later in life and will have a much longer period of health and vitality before that and the same thing with the salamander it's the same as the turtle and are how many 
species do we see this in, or is it very unique that it's just the turtle and just the salamander? It's a funny one. I, I think it's actually going to turn out to be quite a lot of different creatures. Um, so we, we know about tortoises. There are a few species of those. There are a few species of salamander as well. There are also a few kinds of fish. Um, there's a mammal called a naked mole rat, which is this tiny little weird rodent that lives yeah, in burrows gross. in the ground. Yeah, it's gross. Yeah, <laughs> really quite horrible uh, looking at least. But you know, they, they have this incredible. They, they they seem to be immune from cancer. They seem to be immune to dementia. They're actually incredible species. Um, and then there are also a few weirder creatures. So there, there's something called a hydra, which is this centimeter long pond creature that seems to be able to go on for an incredibly long time. We think that obviously we haven't watched them in the lab for long enough to fully understand this. But if their risk of death stayed the same as we currently see it over you know a few years. Years, there'll be about 10% of those little hydra still alive after a thousand years. So they clearly age at an incredibly, incredibly slow rate. Now, that sounds like quite a sort of weird selection of a handful of creatures from around the world. But actually, I think it's going to turn out to be much more common than we think. And that's because imagine you want to do a study to find out if a particular, you know, 200 year old type of fish has negligible senescence. Well, it's going to take you a very long time. You have to get a lot of ecologists, you know, going out into the field and studying these fish and doing very careful population counts and, you know, following them for decades and decades to really get good statistics. So accordingly, we just haven't sampled that many creatures yet. And I feel like it's going to be much, much more common than we think if we go out and actually, you know, start looking for these things a bit more seriously. So you've touched on, and this is in the book, you've got the genomic instability, cellular senescence, which you just talked about, and this mitochondrial dysfunction. These are the things that kind of just decay our cells over time correct? Mm -hmm. It's almost like what your book does in a very practical way is it kind of just says, look, there's hope that we could live longer. Really, that's what that's what this is about is like, it's not that far fetched that maybe one day we can learn from these creatures and figure out a way that maybe we can slow down aging. What is your thesis on that? Because nobody's really nailed that yet at all. I mean, listen, you know, you can go to any cable news channel and you can see a host of supplements that are derived from jellyfish to make you know stave off you know dementia for an extra <laughs> decade but is there any hope that you take what we've learned from some of the biology of these animals and how would you even begin to to have that help a human population live longer I think there's just a huge, huge amount of hope because, and, and we're, we're actually, you know, as, as a field, biogerontology is really dogged by the fact that for centuries there have been these sort of hucksters peddling all kinds of nonsense. I think the weirdest one I came across while I was researching the book was in the 20s, the 1920s, so really quite recently. There was this um, trend for sewing monkey testicles to people, surgically implanting them in the hope that it would extend their lives. And you're just like, that's not good for the person, that's not good for the monkey. Like, what is the possible rationale behind this? But people have been as you said earlier, sort of searching for this fountain of youth for so long. But the reason that it's really exciting is we've got literally dozens of ways to slow down or even reverse the aging of animals and cells in the lab. So this isn't some sort of pie in the sky science fiction. I think the greatest example is actually those senescent cells that you mentioned. So these are cells that accumulate in all of our bodies as we get older. This is another one of those processes that just accelerates with time because these are, they're basically old cells. They're cells that are divided too many times. They're cells that have got too much damage to that DNA that I talked about earlier. So they stop dividing sort of as a safety mechanism in order to prevent themselves turning into a cancer. As you get older, you get more and more of these cells. Your immune system is also aging, ironically, because some of its cells are becoming senescent, and it gets less efficient at clearing up these cells. And what that means is they build up in your body with time. And they don't just sit there not dividing sort of benign elders of the cellular community. They actually pump out this toxic cocktail of molecules, which effectively accelerates the aging process. Now, that all sounds like quite bad news, and it's something that we've known about 
in the you know broad brushes since maybe the 80s or the 90s what's really happened in the last few years is that scientists have developed drugs that can remove these senescent cells while leaving the rest of the cells of the body intact and so what they've done is they've given these drugs to mice they give them to mice that are aged something like uh, 24 months old which you know mice obviously have a much shorter lifespan than people so that's roughly sort of 70 years old in human years and what they find is that those mice basically become biologically younger. They, um, they can live a bit longer, which I guess is an obvious side effect, but they're not just living longer in ill health. It's not just like they're, you know, they're preventing a particular kind of cancer, which means the mice sort of hobble along equally frail. They actually you know, prevent multiple diseases, cancer, heart disease, cataracts, all kinds of different things. They also, uh, they're less frail. They can run further and faster on a little mousy treadmill that they use in these experiments. They can dangle from a rod for longer. They have all these kinds of bizarre experiments that they use to try and test sort of mouse agility and strength. Um, if you put one of these mice that's had the senescent cell treatment in a maze, they're more curious, which is a hallmark of a younger mouse. They even have better fur. And, you know, I'm not a mouse biologist by any stretch. I haven't ever, you know, played with them in the lab. But it's just obvious looking at them. If you look, look at some pictures of these online, you'll see that the mouse that's had the drug, it just looks great. It's got better fur. It's got thicker, plumper skin. And it's got less gray hairs. Um, and so what this really shows us is that these senescent cells, just like a number of those other changes that you mentioned, are fundamental drivers of aging. They cause cancer, they cause heart disease, they cause, you know, everything right up to wrinkles and gray hair. And by removing the root cause, by removing these senescent cells, then we can slow or reverse aging as a whole. And the reason this is exciting, rather than just some sort of pie in the sky thing that's happening in the lab, there are human trials of these drugs happening right now. The first trial actually started in 2018. And I think there are 20 or 30 companies now trying to work out how to commercialize this treatment. You turn it from something in the lab to something that actually works in the clinic. So we're at a really pivotal, exciting time where we've learned enough that we can start to implement some of that stuff in practice. And we, you know, we're, we're moving away from the monkey testicles, basically. <laughs> moving on from monkey testicles to some sort of drug that clears, to your point again, this senescent cell, which almost acts as this, it's a, it's a cell that is divided enough that it can't do, doesn't do it anymore. And then it almost puts out a toxin and that accelerates aging. Where are we on any of those trials? I mean, is that, are we a long way from really even getting some sort of, would it end up being a drug? Would it be a supplement? What do we think that'll ultimately become? The way I think that's going to play out is that currently the trials, so it's quite hard to get a drug approved for aging at the moment, as in a drug that just, you know, you give to someone who's what we would currently call healthy. You imagine someone who's 60, for example, they might be a bit frail, you know, they might have a few aches and pains. And if they don't have a diagnosable disease, it's very hard to give them a drug to keep them healthy. And that's a separate question we can talk about uh, in a bit. There's actually a drug trial that's trying to overturn that problem. But as a result of that, the drug companies are more interested in things that do target specific diseases. And the good news is that because these senescent cells are so prolific in all the various things they cause, there are actually quite a lot of diseases where senescent cells are implicated directly. So that's things like arthritis, or there's another trial for age-related macular degeneration, which is a form of blindness that really commonly afflicts older people. Um, and, and the idea is that by targeting these specific diseases, you remove the senescent cells in that particular part of the body, and then hopefully slow down that particular disease. And as I say, there are literally you know, tens of trials going on right now. These things are going to report you know, in the next few years, and so hopefully we'll see the first senolytic drugs they're called, you know, out in clinics, certainly in the next five years. But at first, they will be for specific diseases. And what we need to hope, we need to cross our fingers for, is that if these things are effective, so, you know, they actually do clear senescent cells, they actually do make the disease better. But most importantly, if they're safe, you know, if they don't have any major side effects, if something hasn't got that many side effects, you can start thinking about prescribing it to people who are, you know, preventatively, basically. Because if they're, if someone hasn't got a disease, you've got a much higher threshold in terms of how few side effects it needs to have before you're going to give them a drug. But if it's safe, if it's effective, we could start handing these things out prophylactically. And it really wouldn't surprise me if that happens in the next 10 years. And would so they be... This stuff is near term. Andrew, would they be, because 
let's say the FDA in the United States. And by the way, is this the is this U.S. based or is this in Europe typically? Um, a lot of it's actually happening in the U.S. at the moment. There's quite a big, vibrant biotech sector, and you've got a couple of big anti-aging labs in the U.S. as well. But it's happening all over the world. Who's legitimate? Who isn't? Is there any particular lab or or university that you think that really is leading the way on this? There are a few labs actually, and I think uh, probably two of the leading ones are both based in the U.S. There's the Mayo Clinic, and they did a lot of the pioneering stuff finding these senolytic drugs. And there's also something called the Buck Institute, which is an aging-specific research institute based in California. And you know, both of those labs are doing really cutting-edge stuff. I think you know, the Mayo Clinic certainly are spinning out, um, co-spinning out various companies. Um, so there's loads of stuff going on. And I think a lot of it, obviously, you're absolutely right that some of it will just fail and we won't necessarily even know why. But I think there are enough serious contenders. There are enough big drug companies. There are enough big biotechs. There are enough you know, big, really serious universities and labs involved. This stuff is, is very legit. Here's another question for you is if we start to frame how we age, it's almost like you go a couple decades and, and things are you almost don't age or you're just growing and then does aging hit you or you're technically, I guess you obviously are aging every day, but are you getting less healthy every day or not until a certain point? A lot of these processes actually start even before you're born, um, which is to say, you know, so we can we can measure something called the epigenetic clock, which is, I, I won't explain all the details of now, but it's basically a clock that measures your aging. And actually that ticks the fastest during development. So it ticks really, really quickly in the womb. Uh, it ticks a little bit more slowly, but still relatively rapidly until about your 20s when you stop sort of developing, so just, you know, in, in the biological sense. And then it slows down a bit, but it's still ticking throughout your life. Um, another really good example is atherosclerotic plaques. That's a hell of a hell of a word, but uh, what it means is the plaques in our arteries that cause heart disease. Those are detectable, albeit very very small, usually in children, and obviously they just go on to develop slowly but surely. And you know, it's not usually until your fifties or sixties or seventies until you start you know having problems and being at risk of heart attack or stroke. Even if you live you know a relatively you know high fat diet and don't get any exercise, it's going to be decades until they get big enough to become a problem. But the fact is that all of these processes. They start, as I say, often before you're born. Let's say the FDA doesn't want to approve some of these things. That going back to the the field of senolytics, the would 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 these clinics and these biotech companies just put out some sort of supplement that isn't doesn't have to be approved? Do you think that's the first stage of this, or do you think it will actually be a drug? It's- it's really interesting to like so just just as a sort of caveat i'm not an expert on regulation but i think there are various ways that this can be done and they really like span the whole gamut of legitimacy so there are some places where you can get various you know quote-unquote anti-aging treatments in offshore clinics so places like columbia where the regulations are more lax and there's actually one tale of a, a biotech ceo who's so convinced by her own gene therapy that she went to columbia and had it done even though there's not a huge amount of evidence for it working she thought i and i think part of her rationale was you know we've got to start somewhere we've got to do a trial i'll be i'll be the first trial participant so that's the sort of one end of things then you're right that sort of supplements and things like cosmetics as well are another sort of backdoor way um, there are certain skin creams that are now being developed that claim to have senolytic properties and part of the reason for that is that cosmetics in the u.s at least are regulated in a very different way to drugs they don't have to you know their, their health claims aren't subject to the same rigorous scrutiny so there are various ways people are trying to do it i think i'm most excited about the things that can actually convince the fda because what we've learned um from this this metformin trial i sort of alluded to earlier say that again. i'm sorry say that again the what what metformin trial? So it's a drug, um, it's a diabetes, uh, let, let me just tell that story now because I think yeah, it's going to turn out to be interesting. So metformin is a diabetes drug and it's it's incredibly widely prescribed. It's one of the most widely prescribed drugs in the world. There are literally millions of prescriptions written every year in the States. 
And in the UK, we've been prescribing it since the 1950s. So it's a really sort of classic old drug. It's not on patent, you know, no one owns it anymore. And what people noticed was um, that there's this fascinating study using uh, UK health data. They looked back at diabetics and sort of the primary goal of this study was to understand whether metformin is better than another class of diabetes drug called sulfonylureas. And the sort of, the, the, the simple headline result was, yes, metformin is the better of the two drugs. And the way they looked at that was just how long people survived after being, you know, diagnosed and put on one of these drugs. But also, as what's called a control, they included a bunch of people in the trial who weren't diabetic at all. You know, there was, they, they might have had other health problems, but they didn't have diabetes. And that meant they weren't taking metformin or these other, this other class of drugs. And what they found, fascinatingly, was that the diabetics taking metformin lived longer than the non-diabetics. And the reason that's particularly fascinating is because if you don't have diabetes, you tend to not uh, be so overweight. You tend to be have better health in other ways. And so that means that it looks like a normal population who are you know healthier than the diabetics, that their, their advantage is completely eroded because of the metformin, they think. And so that's that's suggestive, but it's not conclusive. There are various other lines of evidence. It's been tried in animals. Um, you know, there is, there's some evidence that it might reduce uh, rates of cancer. And so what we really, really want is what's called a randomized controlled trial. So where we give half of the people metformin, half of the people a placebo, uh, so a drug that doesn't, you know, a pill that doesn't do anything. And then they're going to recruit a bunch of, I think it's 60 to 79 year olds, and basically watch them for a number of years and see who gets you know, cancer first, who gets heart disease first, who dies first. And this combination of different things, because you're looking for a whole range of different diseases, this is going to be targeting the broad aging process. And what's really exciting about this trial, it's called TAME, targeting aging with metformin. Um, the idea is that they've developed it in really close collaboration with the FDA. And, you know, on the one hand, metformin probably isn't going to be that exciting. It's not going to double our lifespan or anything. It might give us, you know, a few months or years in good health. It might be something that's worth taking. But because this methodology has been uh, developed so closely in collaboration with the FDA, the plan is that if it works, um, then, or even actually if metformin doesn't work, then this framework will exist for the first senolytic, for example, that wants to be prescribed not for, you know, rheumatism or not for arthritis, but for aging itself. So... That's, that's, that's sort of the plan. And that's why, you know, I think at some point the FDA, they've clearly expressed an interest in this and they understand this now. So it's just a question of getting the first drug across the finishing line. Fascinating because the diabetes, that really has, is a major impact on life expectancy, isn't it? It is, yeah. Basically, I, there are there are so many things, and this w when we come to the health advice, we'll probably you know I'll, I'll probably say the exact same phrase. Diabetes basically accelerates the aging process, just like a lot of mm. other sort of things that are bad for your health, because all that sugar in your blood, um, it, it just has a variety of metabolic effects, and it's not quite the same as aging. It accelerates different things in slightly different ways, but broadly speaking, you know, it increases your risk of cancer, increases your risk of heart disease. All of these things that we associate with aging are also associated with diabetes. So yeah, that's exactly right. Until we get a metformin or a synolytic drug, we've obviously there. There are certainly some things, and you, as a as a biogerontologist, would mm -hmm. help our audience. Just what are the things that we can do before these drugs arrive or these supplements arrive? Not supplements, but these treatments. Let's say for for how mm. you call you call aging almost a. Would you call it a disease again? Yeah, I, I, I half answered this question earlier, didn't I? And the reason, some people do and some people don't. And there's a real controversy. I'm quite pragmatic about it in that I don't like calling it a disease because I don't want to tell everyone over the age of 
I don't know where the cutoff would be, but imagine over the age of 60, oh, you're diseased now. You know, you've reached a point in your life where, you know, through no fault of your own, through simply the fact of being alive, you're diseased. So I feel like that's a real negative point in calling aging a disease. Um, on the positive side, you know, maybe it'll help getting these things like regulators in other countries to get on board. Because if you call it a disease, suddenly that might be something that you can prescribe medication for. Um, and then there's all these sort of boring questions of definition. You know, that there are certain definitions of disease that say if more than half the population can get something, then it's not a disease. And obviously everyone gets aging. Yeah. But at the same time, that definition seems kind of ridiculous because imagine the coronavirus pandemic had got out of control. I mean, there are certain places in the world where more than half of the population has been infected. Does that mean coronavirus isn't a disease anymore? <laughs> like, it just doesn't make any sense. So I'm, I'm really on the fence because I don't want to call old people diseased, but I can see the argument for it. All right, so let's talk about some of the things that we can control now before we get yeah. these medicines, like your teeth and exercise and sleep and your diet and fasting. Maybe let's walk through a couple of these. I've, I remember hearing about teeth. I've, I've heard about that over, over time. And I always mm. kind of thought of it as back in the 1700s, did people even think about brushing their teeth? And then today we think we kind of take for granted tooth hygiene, but it's still a huge, huge variable within longevity, correct? And tell us about that. I found that really fascinating. This is something that I've, like you, I've sort of heard it in the background, but when I was researching the book, I really dug into some of the research. And it's a, it's a fascinating and strange thing, because it turns out, so, so back when this was first bubbling up, it was in the sort of 90s, people noticed that people who had better dental hygiene seemed to have better outcomes for things like heart attack. And so you might think, what on earth is the connection between your teeth and right. um, your heart? And so obviously the first thing that a lot of doctors thought was, this is a case where, because you're doing an observational study, they weren't doing a proper randomized trial. They weren't randomizing half of people to brush their teeth and half of people not to bother and seeing who got heart attacks. Maybe it's the case that the people you're looking at in the population, if they brush their teeth, they're probably more careful with their health in other ways. You know, maybe they're richer, maybe they've got more time to exercise, maybe they are more health conscious so they eat a better diet. So maybe this is a case of what scientists call correlation doesn't mean causation. Mm -hmm. So you see an association, but it's not really one causing the other. But as you understand a bit more about the aging process, and I think this is what's really fascinating about, you know, it's a new lens with which to look at health advice. You can start to pick out the bits of health advice that are genuinely scientifically backed, the things that do genuinely slow down the aging process from the nonsense. And as we've understood a bit more about this toothbrushing thing, it really does seem that having uh, a lack of gum disease, a lack of tooth decay could have an impact on your heart health, maybe even on dementia. And the mechanism there is something called inflammation. So inflammation is the process by which your immune system responds to various threats. And if you're a young person, you get something called acute inflammation, and it's really, really important. So that's, you know, say you get COVID, or say you cut yourself, your immune system rushes over, tries to, you know, gobble up all the viruses, or tries to heal that wound and stop any bacteria getting into it, and so on and so on. And then once the threat's over, you know, once your, your infection's finished, or once that wound is mostly healed, your immune system turns off again, basically instantly. And that's acute inflammation. It's, it's when it's needed, it's intense, and it solves problems. As you get older, you get this problem called chronic inflammation. And this is inflammation that's sort of a constant buzzing paranoia in your immune system. Your immune system's constantly looking over its shoulder. And that can mean things like it can make cancer more likely. It can increase the risk of heart attack. And actually, if you look at uh, you know, the battle in your mouth between your immune system and the bacteria that cause gum disease, for example, you know, the reason um, that you have to go to the dentist, the reason you have teeth out and that kind of thing, this is a battle that your immune system basically can't win. The, the, the bacteria are always there, the immune system's always fighting back, but never quite managing. So that means the infl inflammatory process of fighting those bacteria is ongoing continuously. It is exactly that thing, chronic inflammation. And so that means that that inflammation in your mouth can then spread to the rest of your body by sending, sending out various signaling molecules. And that can increase your risk of heart disease. We think it might even be able to increase your risk of dementia. 
Firstly, because there is some evidence that inflammation can cause dementia, or at least be a contributing factor. And secondly, because we've actually found the bacteria that are, in, uh, that are responsible for gum disease entombed in the brains of people who have Alzheimer's. Now, we don't know whether that's, uh, you know, which, which way the causality runs there. It could be that those bacteria are somewhat behind dementia, or it could be that the bacteria are taking advantage of that diseased brain and sort of sneaking in at that moment. So we don't really know which way the causality runs. We don't, we don't runs. know just yet, yeah. Yeah, but nonetheless, it really, really seems like as well as, you know, avoiding expensive dental bills, avoiding, you know, horrible tooth pain, there's a really good argument that brushing your teeth, you know, flossing, using interdental brushes to clean out those gaps, they can actually have a really practical impact on your health and your lifespan as well. Do we have a number on that? Those who have top 10% healthy teeth live X amount. Do we know that yet? Or we just know that there's a, there's a real relationship. We basically know that it's good. And I think this is, this is a really fascinating problem in a lot of uh, health advice. What, what, what I, what I dreamt of, you know, when I, when I was writing my health advice chapter was to say, you know, do X and you will add Y months to your life. Right. But that's the problem what I is, think. I actually, that's how I think about this. Yeah, that, that's, that's the way Yeah, you're, you're like, and the other calculation you want to do is if I spend an extra 10 minutes a day on my teeth, like how much of my extra lifespan am I spending brushing my teeth? Right. <laughs> or how am I just going to spend all my extra lifespan in the gym, which, you know, may or may not be a trade off you want to make. But I actually spoke to an actuary about this. Uh, so, that, you know, someone at an insurance company, basically, whose job it is to forecast how long people are going to live for pensions and all that. And he said that papers that actually calculate life expectancy changes are gold dust. And the reason they're gold dust is you have to follow people for like 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years in order to get the good data. What they prefer to do, you might follow a group of people for five years. That's still a very big, expensive study because you've got to you know, fund the scientists, fund all that statistical analysis. You've got to bring people back every year and do a bunch of tests on them. And then what you can do is you can say, oh, you know, if you do X, it doubles your risk of death. But it's really hard to translate that risk of death doubling into a particular life expectancy change. So we can often say these things are good. We can often say, you know, to some extent how good in terms of what it does to your risk of death. But it's really hard to translate that into sort of hard months and years, which, you know, you and I would obviously like to hear. The so okay so we, let's talk. Uh, meanwhile, I'm literally as soon as we're done this, I'm going to go make an appointment at my dentist. It's been way too long. Uh, so teeth, and then let's talk about exercise. And and you have some interesting advice that it's certain. There's like this plateau effect with exercise. What about exercise? The best sort of studies show us, and unfortunately, they can't really give you a hard number of years. They show you that by firstly by increasing your exercise by a very small amount you can have a huge benefit so if you're someone who's completely sedentary you know you've got a desk job you sit on the sofa all day uh, or all evening you know watching the telly you don't really move around very much even the first very small steps you know a 10 minute walk can substantially improve the, your potential uh, lifespan so that's an, that's the sort of exciting thing on that end and as you say there is a there does appear it's very hard to really get the stats nailed down because it's hard to find sufficient people who exercise for like 90 minutes a day in order to get really really good statistics because those you know those people might be freaks in other ways basically right if you're really <laughs> exercising for that long headline but, um, if you're exercising is, 90 minutes a day <laughs> dr Steele just called you a freak but i got you <laughs> <laughs> totally pc yeah um but it seems to be that after about 30 minutes of vigorous exercise a day there's a plateau and maybe even a slight decrease in the length of time you're going to live and it's really hard to like tease out the correlation and causation there as well because there are these fascinating studies that show that olympic athletes do tend to live a few years longer than other people so that you know might suggest that being super fit is really good but then you're wondering uh, is the reason are, are they living long because they're olympic athletes and because they've done all that training or are they able to take that like grueling training regime because they're super tough and actually if they hadn't been Olymp olympians they'd have lived even longer and then there's some other really fascinating work looking at chess champions so grandmaster chess players and nobel prize winners and these aren't known for being particularly sort of athletic pursuits you know winning a nobel prize in some you know some scientific field but those people seem to live a few years longer than their peers as well 
And so what that suggests is, you know, maybe simply being super fit isn't the only good thing about being an Olympian. You also get a lot of acclaim. Maybe you've got high social status and that has some influence on your lifespan. So it's a real mystery as to, you know, what effect extreme levels of exercise have. And I think for most of us, that's really optimistic news. It means that, you know, if you can get in a half hour brisk walk a day, you're a long way to doing something about your lifespan. If you, you know, do a bit more high intensity exercise as well, um, you're basically laughing. Wait, wait, so go back to the the mental side of this. Is that because, again, it could be all these other variables, the grandmaster and chess, they maybe are wealthier and the wealth leads to better medicine and they live longer. Or is it this mental exercise that they're, they're it's almost their version of uh, the treadmill? Is that, or is, do we just don't know? I think the answer is that we don't know because there's quite a lot of this stuff about, you know, it, it, maybe you, know, you want to try and ward off uh, dementia. Maybe you should be doing Sudokus every day. You sometimes read this kind of stuff. I don't think we've got really solid evidence. It does kind of seem intuitive that if you're mentally engaged and particularly if you're socially engaged, I think there's a bit better evidence of that. You know, if you've got a good friendship group, good family that's yeah. supportive, people, you know, you're in touch with people every day. That's the sort of thing that can, you know, potentially improve your lifespan. Again, it's really, really hard to put numbers on because there are so many confounding factors. People who've got a good social circle might be wealthier, you know, might have all kinds of different things uh that contribute to that but i think there's what, what you know once we can finally nail this stuff down i think there is going to be some advantage to being mentally active and to having a good social circle but it's really really hard to like nail that into anything specific i think at the moment it's so funny there's so many overlaps between longevity and happiness there's so many correlative there's so many ideas around this i'm a big fan of dan butner's work who was the one who did blue zones and studied the people around the world who lived the longest and what they had in common. I've done lots of research over the years on what are the habits of happy retirees. And so I look at it from a happiness perspective, but socialization is an example in my new book coming out called what the happiest retirees know, essentially 10 habits of what the happy group understands and gets and what mm -hmm. they, how they live their lifestyle. Socialization is a massive piece of the happiness quotient. But to your point, it's a massive piece to the longevity component too. Um, so I, it just it's interesting that there's so much overlap between longevity habits. There are also happiness habits and happiness habits are also longevity habits. So it's just interesting to kind of link those together. Let's talk about sleep and diet and then let's talk about those two. So sleep is always fascinating to me. Obviously, we, we know that it's a good idea to get sleep, but then you also talk about too much sleep could be a bad thing. Talk to us about your sleep habits for longevity. The best thing in terms of sleep seems to be to get seven or eight hours a night. And again, that's sort of, you know, advice that we, we all know it's obviously very hard to stick to. And as you say, there's this interesting relationship that we know that sleeping less long than that is bad for you. And that's kind of intuitive because, you know, you know that when you wake up after four hours of sleep, you're grouchy as hell. And you know, there are, I, it sort of refer to your previous point. There are lots of these things that are win-win because if you get a bit more sleep, you also have a better day and you live longer as a bonus. Like that's, yeah. that, you know, that's great. That's a true win-win. And then if you... Yeah. But unfortunately, if you sleep longer than seven or eight hours as well, if you're doing that, you know, regularly sleeping nine, 10, 11 hours a night, mm. that actually seems to be worse for your health than not getting enough sleep. The real challenge here, again, is like teasing out the correlation and the causation because it will be wildly impractical and frankly unethical to do a proper randomized study, you know, where you forced people to only sleep six hours a night and forced a bunch of people to sleep nine and a half hours a night. I mean, could you even enforce longer sleep than, you know, some people just wake up after seven hours? So what are you going to do? You're going to force them to stay in bed? Like, how would that even work? So the question is, given that we haven't done this sort of ideal randomized study, are there people who only sleep four hours a night, do they have really stressful lives and jobs that they, you know, simply can't get enough rest? Are there people who are sleeping 11 hours a night doing it because they love being in bed or have they got a medical condition that means they're, you know, that's forcing them to sleep a bit longer so there's a there's a there's a real mystery here in terms of again actually nailing it down 
Um, and I think what I found most compelling about this wasn't these observational studies that are sort of mired with these confounding problems, but it was the the fact that we've got some mechanisms now, some biology that can suggest to us why it is that people who um, who sleep more might live longer. Yeah, well, what the is that? Yeah, one, tell me your version of why sleeping is healthy. You, I think you call it something like spring cleaning almost. Yeah, the be- I think the best evidence we've got is that when you sleep, your brain goes into a slightly different mode and it flushes through uh, what's called the cerebrospinal fluid. So that's the stuff that um, drains out of your brain down and down into your spine. And that's a way that your brain can get rid of toxic substances. And it seems that that happens, you know, while you sleep, your brain enters this slightly different cycle where it starts flushing out various toxins, one of which is the amyloid beta, which is the stuff that builds up in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease. And so the idea is that if you get a nice long night's sleep, that gives your brain plenty of time to do this spring cleaning and hopefully reduces the risk of things like dementia. So, you know, this, it's early days for this kind of science, but that's compelling enough to make you think that there's probably some mechanism behind this. It's not just, you know, pure correlation causation problem. It almost sounds a little bit like this this concept of senescence, right? It's almost flushing the bad out. There's quite a lot of things in aging, actually, where you're absolutely right. You, you know, there are things that accumulate. So one one of the the, the first sort of the first treatment chapter of my book is called Out with the Old. And it's because there's a, a whole class of things, you know, like senescent cells, like the amyloid in Alzheimer's, where probably the best way to treat these things is to get rid of the bad thing that's been accumulating over time. So that's exactly right. By the way, I'll, just a plug for your book here, Ageless, The New Science of Getting Older Without Getting Old, which is a very cool subtitle, by the way. Oh, this is you. so hard to do, by the way, for people. Uh, the, I can tell you, book writing, the title is maybe the, the toughest thing, and then the subtitle is even worse. But Ageless really is, 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 a really, <laughs> is a really interesting read. Tell me about diet. Tell me about diet. I mean, again, I'm a big believer in, in a lot of these uh in the in kind of the mediterranean diet i've learned over many years that diet i used to think it was 80 percent exercise 20 percent diet when i was young and then i've realized today i think it's like the inverse of that i think it's like 90 percent diet 10 percent exercise but i don't know what's your what's your take on how to eat healthy and then i i what i don't know a whole lot about is fasting and you write about that in, in a lot of your different works tell me about diet and fasting I think you're absolutely right, actually, that diet is a bigger component probably than exercise. And I think that's true if you're, whether you're thinking about aging or whether you're thinking about weight loss, because it's just incredible, you know, how few calories you burn in a run compared to how many calories you can eat in a cheeseburger. Right. It's absolutely, you know, just doesn't even, uh, doesn't even begin to stack up. And I think the same is true with aging. Um, in terms of diet, I, f- I feel like there's obviously a lot of discussion about, you know, the Mediterranean diet, or maybe you should eat, eat you know, the Atkins diet, where you eat loads of protein and fat and no carbs. There are all these different permutations. And actually, I firmly believe that we are going to cure aging. You know, we're going to have a full biological understanding of, the, understanding of the aging process before we understand exactly what's going on with diet, because it's just so frustratingly complicated. Um, and I think actually fasting is a really good example of this, because there's one of the earliest results actually in aging biology was this thing called calorie restriction or dietary restriction and this was an experiment done back in the 1930s there are a bunch of rats and a guy called clive Mackay did this experiment where he reduced the calorie intake of one set of rats by about 40 percent. this is quite a substantial reduction in the amount of food they're eating but he made sure they got what's called optimal nutrition so you know he made sure they got all their vitamins and minerals and stuff and what he found was that the animals that were in the calorie restricted group lived vastly longer in better health than the animals that were allowed to eat what they liked so that was the sort of first hint. Actually, that was the first hint. The aging process was malleable because you've got these, these rats, depending on how much they eat, depending on their diet, they can have vastly different aging trajectories. They can age much, much more slowly or age, you know, at basically the normal speed. 
And as a result of that, there's been a huge amount of research into calorie and dietary restriction more widely. And we've noticed it works you know, not just in rats, it works in mice, it works in everything from single-celled yeast, so the fungus that's used for you know, baking bread and brewing beer, right up to you know, monkeys it seems to work in as well. But the really frustrating thing is that it's, it's so hard to find solid dietary restriction prescriptions for humans, because there have been a few really short studies that have lasted you know, a few months or maybe even a few years at the outside that show that people get healthier but again it's like we were saying earlier this sort of you know a longevity study would be gold dust because in order to really properly do this you'd have to follow people for you know potentially decades have half of them eating what they wanted and half of them dietarily restricting and obviously there are loads of different combinations in which you can restrict as well so the reason in the book i i almost exclusively use the term dietary restriction and that's a bit of uh, sort of pedantry because initially it was thought that calories were the key thing but more recent research has suggested that reducing the amount of protein that you get might be a, a bigger driving factor than the number of calories and actually that's one reason we think that eating a more vegetable based sort of plant-based diet might be better for you than eating a lot of meat and that's because the so in, in the protein in vegetables proteins are made up of these building blocks called amino acids and the amino acids in meat are basically perfectly tailored to the human body because if you eat a bit of muscle you know muscle from a cow basically that's going to have very very similar amino acids to the muscle and the, you know the other tissues in your body but if you eat uh, you know something from a plant you know whether it's a pea or it's a nut or something like that that's got a lot of protein in it the amino acid ratios in that are slightly different so if you eat enough protein that you no longer feel hungry then it's quite likely you're actually restricting at least some of the essential amino acids because you know you're effectively not getting enough of them and although that sounds like a bad thing actually it's sort of dietary restriction by the back door you feel full you feel like you've eaten enough food but actually you're you know you're eating less of these restricting amino acids and that means that you end up you know going on to reap some of those dietary restriction benefits so there's just so many different dimensions of this and also you actually started by asking me about fasting which i haven't right, even right, touched on fasting. this this idea that you know rather than not eating or rather, rather than eating substantially less continuously which is really really hard work you know if you if you ask people in these studies they report that the hunger never goes away uh, they feel cold they feel irritable sometimes it can have an effect on your immune system there are all kinds of side effects so the idea is that rather than uh, not eating as much continuously you could literally not eat or you could eat substantially substantially less you know maybe 500 calories on two days a week or every other day or there are some people who like to do you know an extended fast like they'll do a week or something of fasting once every few months or something like that and the principle behind all of these is to try and activate those same mechanisms that allow us to live longer with dietary restriction but maybe it's a bit easier to stick to but the problem with that is that the evidence is actually even harder to come you know even harder to find than it is just for pure dietary restriction because that's something that's been you know thought of much 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 later in the process and there's also this um this sort of fascinating confusion between the two because a lot of the what are called dietary restriction experiments in mice the way they're typically performed so mice are nocturnal naturally so they come out at night and so the way that they get fed in a dietary restriction experiment is that the phd students because it always falls to the students to you know sort of do the boring jobs around the lab they go in last thing in the evening they pop the food into the mouse's cage and then they go home and they come back the next morning and the food's gone but if you watch what the mice do these mice are starving they're on diet they're not actually starving starving you know, they're very very hungry they're on dietary restriction so they gobble up all their food you know in the first 30 minutes and that means they're effectively doing intermittent fasting because they don't eat for 23 hours out of 24. And so the question is, is the longevity effect they're getting because they're eating less or because they're eating in a certain time window? So there are just so many permutations of this. This is why I keep saying, you know, we're going to have cured aging by the time we get to the bottom of this stuff. Yeah. Wow. Well, so let's talk about supplements then. So, I mean, again, I, again, I, I think of all the commercials I hear on radio and television and cable news about supplements and we spend billions of dollars on these things and vitamins and I still take vitamins every day. Do you you think that's just a big waste or not really? Where do you come down on that? 
I do think it's a waste. Yeah, and the reason is I've looked at what what I think. But so straight up, you're telling our people, you're you're telling our listen, my listeners, that you think it's a waste to take vitamins. Seriously, I think pretty much. And I I should add an important caveat, which is that sometimes if your doctor has recommended you take a particular vitamin because you've got a particular deficiency, and sometimes this can change with age as well. So if if you've got older listeners, then some of them probably should be taking particular vitamins that they've been recommended by a healthcare professional. But for most people, popping a multivitamin or popping a particular vitamin pill, you know, vitamin C or something every morning, isn't going to have any effect on your lifespan. And the way that we can know this is there have just been so many studies of this over, over the years. And therefore, the best uh, evidence that we can get is something called a systematic review. And this is where scientists don't just look at one study. They look at every study that they can find in the literature. So they go onto a massive database of all the various scientific publications. They search for a particular vitamin. They pull together all the studies. They discard the ones that look dodgy or might have been funded by industry or have bad statistics. Dodgy. They pull together all the, the best, biggest studies, mix them up, you know, do some clever statistics, basically, to combine them into one massive study. And there's something called a Cochrane Review. Uh, the Cochrane Collaboration is this group of scientists who... They're basically the gold standard of this systematic review technique. They go out and do them for all kinds of different things, mainly for medicines, it has to be said, but they, you know, they also do things like supplements. And they pulled together as many papers as they could on vitamin supplements, and they found that they either had no effect on your chance of death or actually slightly increased your chance of death. I think vitamin E and beta-carotene supplements slightly increased people chance, people's chance of death. Now, this isn't by very much. It's not like you're slashing you know, 10 yeah. years from your life by popping the supplements, but basically, it seems they don't really work. And actually, the biology behind that is that the original reason we thought supplements were important is because people thought that free radicals were a driving force behind aging. And these are things that are produced uh, in the process of metabolizing your food. And they can go on, they can do things like they can damage your DNA and they can damage other parts of your cells. And it was thought that they were a driving force behind the aging process. But actually, as biogerontology has advanced in the last sort of 10, 20 years, we've realized that theory doesn't really hold water. It's, It's not as simple as that. And so therefore, taking something like vitamin C to mop up those free radicals doesn't make a lot of difference and actually probably what will happen is if you're taking vitamin c your body notices that you've got less free radicals some of these free radicals are used for processes in your body so they're used for things like sending messages between cells they're used actually most intriguingly i think by your immune system sometimes uses free radicals to kill bacteria and so if you don't have enough of those free radicals then your body will either turn up their production or it will try and get rid of the vitamin c so you'll excrete it as you know as fast as possible basically you you wear out that's why you get very expensive we with all these supplements and um, you know, we, if you take I mean, too again, much the, the C, UK dialect, you know, dodgy and we, is so much better than uh, <laughs> let's say dodgy would be suspect and we would just be p here. So yeah. it's. Uh, I, I, I love <laughs> I'm glad it. you're translating for your listeners because yeah, I'm I'm, uh, I'm afraid I'm thoroughly British through and through. <laughs> you you are, and vitamins is vitamins, but yeah, I think we get and again, you know, one thing that I think was is tougher is you you guys say beta so versus beta so the amyloid beta or be it beta. I say beta, yeah. So beta, okay. letter beta, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about this. Let's. I want to talk. I think of, and again, I think of our audience with uh, the thought around longevity, and when you're thinking about retiring, and if you retire early, it let's say 58 or 60, and some of this research comes through, and we end up living way longer. I mean, it's a big. It, there's so many implications for this, right? There's the implication financially. How much? How much do we save? Do we just go? Do we work longer? Do we go? Do we stop working and then go back to work? Do we go back to school? I mean, do you really think that there is a realistic path? And maybe this isn't in in my or our lifetime. Maybe it's 50 years from now that we start to solve these and we really extend life. And it's not crazy to see 120, 130, 150. 
and then you've got all these different acts of life. Do you really think that that could be a that could that's a possibility? Definitely. And I'm so as as a scientist, I am very very unwilling to ever give any hard time scales. Sure, so journalists sure. hate me because they're always like, "Is is it going to happen in the next three three point seven years?" And you're like, "I just don't know." But what's what the, my sort of bet hedging answer is that I think this is going to happen in the enough to impact most people alive today. And the reason that I say that is um is as I say, I'm sort of hedging my bets, but also it's it's kind of cool because so if you think about senolytics, these are drugs that will probably be able to prescribe preventatively in the next ten years, unless you know we get unlucky and they just don't work for some weird. reason reason and i think that's probably on the unlikely side then you've got things like metformin and there are also other drugs that we use for other things at the moment that we might be able to repurpose to um you know to, to, to slow down the aging process again these things could happen relatively soon you know, we're not talking decades and decades here and that means that if you're alive and you're in relatively good health in time for those things to happen you know maybe you take uh, the first generation of senolytics or you, you know, and you're also popping some metformin that might add a few years to your lifespan and what's going to happen in those few years well scientists have a few more years to develop the next treatment and so on and as I was uh, writing the book, so there's, there's also some stuff that isn't just drugs. There's things like stem cell therapy and gene therapy. Mm-hmm. And these sound a bit more sci-fi, but they're not like centuries away. You know, we, we've already got gene therapies that are in the clinic now. They're mainly for rare genetic diseases rather than aging. But as, again, we understand those gene therapy, uh, the, the ways that we deliver that gene therapy more, we can make sure they're safe, we can make sure they work in those diseases, we'll get more and more willing to hand them out to people preventatively. And that means, you know, maybe in 20 years time, you might have a couple of genetic alterations that will slow your aging down, or you might have a stem cell therapy to replace some missing cells that decrease in quantity as you get older. And as I say, that sounds sci-fi, but it's not, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it happened in the next 20 or 30 years. And then, as I was getting toward the end of the science part of the book, I started talking about this idea of systems biology. And this is the idea that you could build a massive computer model that understands the whole of human biology, it knows what's going on in our cells, it understands the whole of the body, that's ultimately how I think we're going to do medicine. You know, maybe it's going to be a century away, maybe it's going to be five centuries away. But, um, you know, I, I think at some point you're going to go in, your doctor's going to do a bunch of different measurements. They're going to look at your genome. They're going to look at all the different proteins in particular cells. They're going to put, put all this into a massive machine learning computer model. And the com- computer model is going to spit out some combination, maybe drugs or vitamins or whatever it is, or treatments that are going to sort of normalize your body, whatever, whether it's a disease you've got or whether you're just getting older. And as I was writing that, I thought, you know, man, you've, you've gone off, you've gone off the deep end now, Steele. You know, you're, you're talking about the sort of sci-fi computer model of human biology. But then, if you think about it, it would be, it wouldn't be crazy to imagine that this might happen in 50 years' time. Because if you look back 50 years ago, we'd only just started to understand the structure of DNA. We'd only just, you know, start, computers were in their absolute infancy. You know, if you had a computer in your pocket in the 1970s, or, that's not even a thing. You'd had a computer in your living room in the 1970s, right. and it would have filled the whole room. And we've now got phones in our pockets that are more powerful than those computers. So you can imagine that in the next 50 years, we've gone from like just about knowing the structure of DNA, we can sequence your whole genome, your entire genetic code for less than $1,000 and in a few hours in the modern world. And then we've got the computing power to process that information. So in 50 years time, like, you know, who knows where we're going to be? We might not have the absolute ultimate model of the whole of human biology, but we might know enough that we have the first sort of tentative systems biology models. And that means we can start to intervene in a more intelligent way when it comes to aging. And so that means that, you know, if you're alive, if you're not in terrible health now, if you keep yourself healthy by following the health advice, if you get those first generations of senolytics and metformin and things like that, and then you know if you're old, then you benefit from the further treatments, the gene therapies, the stem cells, you might live long enough to see these first computational models of aging as well. Well, not to and mention so, too, Andrew, all of the just the advances in things like mRNA technology. I mean, the fact that you know it took a year, about a year, to get COVID vaccines approved, but if you really what we don't typically hear about or think of it as you think, oh, it only took a year. Well, really, it took a year to do the trials. The reality is that 
that COVID vaccine was developed in like a couple weeks, which, yeah. is, which is like, it's fascinating. So we, not only do we have your field of biogerontology, but also just the fact that modern medicine continues to hopefully continues to get better. I mean, gosh, in the seventies, you're talking about 50 years ago or the 40 some years ago. I mean, we were still debating like if smoking was even bad for you, right? Wasn't that still mm -hmm. like, oh, well, maybe, maybe, right? I mean, it, it is amazing what happens in these short periods of time. It really is. And I think what's really exciting is that um, you sort of alluded to it, the mRNA vaccines. They're a general purpose technology. So that's something that, you know, the, the initial application is going to be things like vaccination, because it means that you can look at a new uh, disease, a new virus, you can find its genetic sequence, you can create an mRNA vaccine really, really quickly, then you can roll it out into the population. That's exciting. But mRNA is effectively a way to give your cells instructions. You can basically tell your cells to do anything with mRNA. And what that means is that rather than telling it to fight a particular virus or making a particular change in that way, we could tell it to produce a protein that doesn't exist in your body that can fight a particular form of age-related damage. Or we, you know, we can program your cells to slightly turn back the clock just for a, a short period of time to make you sort of rejuvenate them, make them biologically younger. And because we have things like mRNA, these, these technologies that are so general purpose, we can turn them to all kinds of different applications. And you know, it might not be that we have it might be that the aging biology field doesn't have a piece of mRNA code that can reverse your aging in the next 10 years. But if they do in 20 years time, the mRNA vaccine technology is going to be so much more advanced. We're just going to be able to slot it straight in there. As you say, you know, you might design it in a couple of weeks and then it'll be the tests that take the time to see if people actually do live longer. Wow. It's so hopeful. Well, uh, as we round out today, what, so when you did this book, I know these things take a long period. This is, this, these are long processes. This takes, this takes, an awful lot of time to do the research and then obviously to write it. What about just a, a major habit that you're now implementing? I think I'm gonna answer that in two ways. I think the first thing is I've just become a lot more generally aware of my health. And I think a good example of that is that I've started taking my blood pressure quite regularly. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily, you know, every day, but you know, maybe once or twice a month just to sort of see what the trajectory is. And the reason is it's all about being aware of your body. And I could sort of answer this by saying, you know, I've, I've tried to eat a bit better. I've tried to exercise a bit better. I don't think I had a terrible diet before and I, I wasn't a total couch potato, but equally I've really realized those things literally slow down aging. And therefore it's, it's really worth, you know, just making sure you try and get that average of 30 minutes exercise a day, for example. And the blood pressure thing, it's just, it is just about being aware of your body because having high blood pressure is something that you can't see, you can't feel, it doesn't have any symptoms until, you know, 10 or 20 years of high blood pressure, like batters those blood vessels inside your body. And it might cause, it can accelerate dementia, it can accelerate heart disease and that kind of thing. So it's just a question of, of being aware of these things that you can do. And the second way that I'd like to answer the question is that I think the single most important thing we can do, and the reason that I wrote this book, is because we need to spread the word about aging biology. So I think all of this health advice, it's effectively a stopgap. It's, you know, I'm hoping to live long enough to benefit from some of the biology, bi biological treatments that are being developed. Because all the health advice, you know, if you do everything possible in the best possible way, you can probably add like five, 10, maybe 15 years to your life. You're not looking at, you know, a radical extension of your, your healthy lifespan. However, if we could just increase the amount of funding that's going into this research, it's currently getting a tiny fraction of the amount of money that's, so, so to give an example, the US spends $4 trillion a year on healthcare, four trillion. And yet the NIA, the part of the government, the National Institute of Aging that actually looks at aging biology, is given a budget of three and a half billion dollars. So that's a thousand times less, more than a thousand times less. And actually, if we drill down even further, the part of that organization that's specifically looking to understand the aging process rather than dementia is about $350 million. That's you know just over a dollar per American. 
Pay and so up. we could just increase that amount of money. You know, if we could write to Congress people, write to your representatives, you know, and it's not just about policymakers, it's about scientists, it's about doctors. You know, the, the, the reason that I moved from science to, to being an author is because I spoke to biologists and they often haven't had a lecture on aging biology because it's not a wide, it's not a widespread field. There are far more cancer researchers. There are far more sort of basic cell biology researchers than there are aging researchers. If you talk to doctors, my wife's a doctor. And I think when, when I met her and started talking to her about this stuff, she thought I was crazy because again, medical school they don't have a lecture on aging biology they have lectures on how to manage older people how to deal with people taking lots of different medicines the various social problems of aging but nothing on the idea of treating aging itself and that's somewhat excusable because there isn't currently a drug that she can prescribe her patients that will slow down her aging but it's going to happen in the space of her career i think so it's really something that should be on people's radars and similarly you know we just need the public to be aware of this stuff because i want people to be talking about this you know in bars and at dinner parties and just really aware that this is something that's really exciting it could happen in our lifetimes it can radically change retirement what it means to be human so this is something we should really really be putting some effort into so it sounds like a weird bit of health advice but actually i think the best health advice i can give is spread the word about aging biology fascinating so i'm going to call you a crusader around biogerontology you're a crusader for this so you just said that you're now full-time author does that mean you're no longer in the lab at all no, so th- I, I'm so glad I, I, I made that decision because, as you said, writing a book takes ages. I basically spent about two years full time, like reading all the various papers and speaking to scientists, then turning that into words, then editing those words down. It, just digesting that sheer amount of stuff, I think, will be very, very hard to do alongside a full time job. And I think I, I, I sort of shot myself in the foot by choosing such a broad topic because aging, it covers every facet of our biology. You know, it's, it's not that there's, there's one particular process that really, really dominates here. It's literally every single part of our cells, our molecules, everything slowly degenerates in various different ways with time. And so, yeah, as you say, I think it's just, it takes a hugely long time. So I'm very, very glad I've just been lucky enough to have the opportunity to spend all this time, you know, talking to these researchers, reading all these papers and really getting to grips with this enormous topic. God, it's so fascinating. I, I'm going to call this a overtime with Andrew Steele here, the doctor, the crusader on... Uh, biogerontology. Just a quick question. This is kind of out of sequence. I remember there was a long, it was a couple of years seeing commercials about, I think the commercial had a 75-year-old guy who looked like he was in the shape of his life. He was a bodybuilder. And they showed a picture of when he was 50 and he looked old and tired and overweight. And then when he was 70, he was you know, in shape and looking great. And I think it was some, I think it was part of the HGH movement, where they were constantly talking. I remember hearing about HGH, and it's the one thing that keep you young. Is that is that kind of just a big falsehood as well, or was there some real biology behind HGH, or is that am I thinking about the right commercial series? I think HGH. We haven't got the solid evidence. So HGH is human growth hormone, and you know it's commonly used by people who want to build up muscle mass. It's one of those things that kickstarts the growth processes inside your body. My guess, if I had to bet is that it reduces how long you live. And the reason for that is that, the, that there, there are these sort of competitions in biogerontology to try and see who can get a mouse to live the longest. And the current reigning champion of longest lived mouse is a mouse that's had a genetic alteration. It's called a Leron mouse. And um, that genetic alteration has been uh, created to try and emulate a human disease called Leron syndrome. And the people with Leron syndrome, they primarily live in Central America in a particularly uh, sort of large extended family community. And they've got a defect in their growth hormone receptors. And what that means is that although they can produce growth hormone, they can't detect it. 
And that means that these people, uh, they're very short. So you know, I think they grow to about 1.3 meters in height or something. So very, very tiny. They also seem to be protected against things like cancer and diabetes. Unfortunately, it's very, very hard to do proper stats on that community because um, they seem to have an awfully high death rate from accidents and alcoholism. So it's really, really tricky to try and you know, tease out how much longer they're living or how much longer they would live in the absence of these external factors. Nonetheless, these mice have been engineered to have this same uh, defect in the growth hormone receptor. So they're tiny, tiny mice but they live dramatically longer than other mice. And th- there's also some evidence from super from centenarians, from people who make it to over the age of 100, that they often have perhaps not a complete lack of a glo- growth hormone receptor, but they have mutations that makes it slightly less effective. So it seems in general, like having less growth hormone promotes longevity. It's very, very hard to know. It might be that it differs at certain times in your life and perhaps not having growth hormone during development is beneficial, but then it might be good to top it up in later life. We really aren't sure. And there's more work to be done. But if I had to bet... I'd say HGH shortens your life. Wow. All right, we're going to leave it at that. Have you already been approached to do your own TV show on this? <laughs> it's something we're working on. I'd, uh, I'd, I'd be very keen to spread, as I say, if I want to spread the word, TV is a really good way to do it, so fingers crossed. Uh, is that would be in the UK? Uh, we're talking to people in the UK and the US, actually, so we'll have to see. Mm. Coming to a Netflix near you, Andrew Steele. Who knows, right? Who knows, yeah, the future. A fascinating interview, Dr. Andrew Steele, on a fascinating topic that could impact, that impacts all of us, particularly if the science or the community of science and biogerontologists start to get this right. I'd encourage you to pick up a copy of this book. Obviously, you could find it on Amazon. The title, Ageless, The New Science of Getting Older Without Getting Old. The author, Dr. Andrew Steele, there's already hundreds, hundreds of four and five star ratings. Fascinating and a wonderful read. Hey, y'all, this is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. This podcast is provided to you as a resource for informational purposes only and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. It is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment or financial planning considerations. Please refer to the full disclosure in the podcast description for any additional information information.